Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a new podcast series conceived by BBI, the UK's first black business institute, an organization which aims to boost prospects for underprivileged black entrepreneurs by promoting equivalent access to the UK's funding structures and essential business networks. I'm your host, Lord Michael Hastings, and over the next 12 weeks, myself and my fellow hosts, June Sarpong and Bianca Miller-Cole, will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and changemakers. COVID-19 and the killing of George Floyd have emphasized society's race, class, and social equality fault lines. And we'll be touching on these issues over the course of the series. As we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken down into three sections, with the guests sharing their favorite piece of music or soundtrack representing a memorable stage of their life. We kick off the series with a very special episode. My fellow host, June Sarpong, presenter, author, and director of Creative Diversity at the BBC, speaks to Christo Brand, the man who served as Nelson Mandela's jailer and eventually became his best friend. They discuss Mandela's early time in prison, how he always remained hopeful in the face of adversity and injustice, and how they forged an unlikely, everlasting friendship through their time spent together. You're on mute, imprisoning the next president. A man with seemingly no future, imprisoned in a place where statistically there is little hope, becomes one of the globe's most important leaders and icons. But was it always clear? The young jailer was standing guardian of South Africa's next president, an international role model and a figure most of the world's population would grow to love and respect. Joining me today is Christo Brand, jailer to Nelson Mandela for 12 years, a man that went from being his jailer to becoming one of his dear friends. Christo, welcome. So lovely to have you with us. My, I'm very happy to be with you today. Fantastic. How's it in South Africa at the moment? Presumably you have lots of sunshine. <laughs> sunshine and very cold. Oh, wow. And okay. Very cold in Cape Town and a little bit of unrest also. Oh, oh okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, we can go into that in more detail. Um, so, I, first of all, I, I really want to just hear more about you. Um, I think it would be great to get an overview of, of you, the man, um, and then obviously we can go into uh, your time with Madiba and, and what that relationship was like. Now, obviously, what we love to do with this series is look at the songs that have really helped shape our guests. So before we get into our discussion, I want you to tell me a little bit about your first track. And uh, you've picked Elvis Presley's Blue Suede <laughs> Shoes. And what does that mean to you? <laughs> you know, that's a year Elvis Presley also passed, 1978. 
And then it was full on the radio and Blue Sage Wheels and all this was really our favorite in South Africa to celebrate his life and so on. So that was meaning for me, something that excited. We tried to dance his tunes and things, you know. <laughs> Brilliant. I love yes, it. Yes. A, a question though, Krista, did you have your own pair of blue suede shoes? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about you. Tell me about your family background first and foremost. Um, and then obviously let's go into um, some of the time at Robben Island. But tell me more about you and your background and, and, and where you grew up and how you even became a prison guard at Robben Island? I grew up on a farm where I was the only white child playing with African children. And one day I was disrespectful to the elder African man there and my father gave me a hiding. And he said to me, the person can be black, but a human being like us. And we must respect each other as human beings. My father was very poor. He was just a foreman. We could have not even give, go to the rich farmer's house, but they were standing at the back door. We were treated like the workers. But at the age of 12, my father got pneumonia and we was moved, chased off the farm. So we moved to the city. For the first time in the city, I didn't have black friends to play with because it was discrimination in the cities. I didn't see much black people around the area where I stayed. I was in a new school and the new school a year before I left school, one of my best friends was called up for military service. That year, it was compulsory for all white children to join the military. And that day when I see my friend off, he said to me, he don't want to join the military. He don't want to fight black people in the townships. That year, the military operated in our townships. He don't want to fight black people on the borders. He want to become a medical doctor. But the government said he must first serve for two years. Six months after his training in, in the military, he was sent to the borders. He was killed by so-called terrorists. And that day, when I sat in the church, the priest said, what hero this gentleman was for our country. How does gentlemen protect our country against the black enemy? For me, sitting in the church, listen to that. I said, my friend was not a hero. He didn't want to be there. The blacks was not my enemy. I also don't feel to join the military at all. But luckily, a gentleman visited our school. They're looking for prison guards just before I must finish school that year. I was not interested in that. Tell him mention exemption from military service. Then I think I will have a conversation with this guy. And after our conversation, I told him, I don't want to become a prison guard. I want to become an electrician. He said, that's a right opportunity to take. You can become a prison guard. And after your training, you apply to work in a prison workshops. And you can help prisoners become electricians. So I signed up and that's how I become a prison guard. And how old were you then, Christo? I was 18 years old. Oh, my goodness. When I was sent wow. for my training. And I become 19 on Robben Island. Wow. Wow. So you had young men, basically teenagers, guarding adults. I mean. That's correct. Wow. Wow. And so when you were at Robben Island, what, what, were, what were you thinking? What were your thoughts at the time? Did you understand the injustice of it all? Or were you at that time believing that perhaps the people that you were guarding deserve to be there? You know, I didn't know about injustice in South Africa. I know only from the farm a little bit, not see much in the city because I was a kid. I was just playing, enjoy life. But when I landed on Robben Island, my, the head of the prison welcomed us and told us we're going to meet the biggest criminals in the history of South Africa. 
So I think I'm going to meet gangsters. Till I opened that cell that morning in isolation, where elderly, elderly old men stand up from the floor, slept on two mats, three blankets. It was terribly cold. It was winter. And immediately I feel sorry for these guys. But instruction we get, we're not allowed to talk and communicate with these guys. So I just greet and walk onto the second cell. And that's my first interaction on Robben Island. Wow. 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 And so tell me what daily life was like pre um, Nelson Mandela entering Robben Island. The daily life on Robben Island for the prisoners and even Nelson Mandela was five o'clock in the morning. There was a bell ringing through the prison. That's to wake prisoners, to make them awake. Then they must start packing up their things, roll up their mats, fold up their blankets, start polishing the floor. Six o'clock, a guard will come around and see if they're really up and busy cleaning the cells. And so half past six, the, waters, the, the guards stand parade. Quarter to seven, they open the outside doors of the cells that we can first count the prisoners. And then after that, we open the cells and issue the prisoners their food. And a medical officer will pass and give some prisoners medication. It's need medication. After that, half past seven, quarter to eight, we march the prisoners to the different places where they work on Robben Island. Like Mandela worked in a limestone quarry. We march him out there. And there they will work full-time breaking down lime rock the whole day till about one o'clock. One o'clock in a limestone quarry, there was a big hole in the limestone quarry where we bulked all the prisoners in. So the guards who guard them from the top, looking down on these prisoners, can come down for lunch. And I was also guarding them from the top. And then after two o'clock, we call the prisoners out of the hole. And then we start work again till about quarter past four. Quarter past four, they must pack up tools and we march them back to the prison. And then at the prison, when they arrive there, we issue them their food, which they can take there to their cells. Prisoners rush quickly, get a quick shower. Mandela will take a quick shower of maybe first deal with his prison garden a little bit and then back into the shower. And then five o'clock, all prisoners must be locked up. That is Monday to Fridays. Saturdays and Sundays, we kept prisoners all inside prison because half of the guards on Robben Island is away for the weekend. So there's limited of guards. Prisoners can't, can't go and work. So they were in, in confinement basically for the whole weekend, not allowed out. No, they was allowed outside. You must remember in the early years, Mandela was allowed one hour a day, half an hour in the morning out and half an hour in the afternoon. But that year when I came on Robben Island, there was open from set half past seven in on Saturday morning till about one o'clock, one till two o'clock. They was locked in their cells of, sorry, till 12 o'clock. Weekend shows 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock till two o'clock, we locked them back in their cells. Two o'clock, well, we opened them again. And four o'clock, we locked the prisoners back up. But Saturdays was a days prisoners could have get visits, you know, where family members could have visit and even Sundays. Mm. But Sundays, all the prisoners must stay actually inside their cells. Wow. They can only come to the courtyard when a priest come to give the gospel for them. And there was different priests. There was Muslim priests coming. We will, we will call out prisoners, which is Muslims, to come to the courtyard. Then we will make them sit there in the sun and the priest will give the conversation for them about church. And then after that, maybe another priest will come, Methodist church. But Mandela later decided and said to his comrades, comrades, we belong to all these churches. So when a Muslim priest come, we all go to the outside and sit and listen to him. Wow. And when the next priest come, we sit outside. So the guards didn't know what was going on. 
So I asked Mandela one day, why you do that, Mandela? Because you not belong to that congregation, to that um, church. He said, Mr. Brandt, you know, that guy was sent by God to us. Hmm. And bring, not from the church so impossible, but he come to give us the message out of the Bible. Yeah. So we could have met him. He knew our faces. He can still take a message for us outside, but he can maybe in his church, he can pray for us. And the community can pray for us. And they can tell us that you have met us on Robben Island. Yeah. And that was also connection to the outside world. Yeah. Oh, how amazing. Now, God didn't like this church things because it was always in a courtyard in the sun. Yeah. So the guards sometimes walk to the offices. There's guards on the post. And that's a time, like Mandela said, there was one of them assigned to steal while the priest is praying. And yeah. what did they steal? They steal from the priest, small suitcase, they steal the newspaper. And I did. And the priest never complained. Because I was hungry for news. For news outside. Yes, yes. Because I didn't get news. So what was your impression of Mandela when you first met him? Could you tell he was an extraordinary man? And presumably you'd heard all of the news around the trial because it was such a big case globally at the time. You know, I can first tell you after my two weeks on Robben Island, I was weekend off when I get to my family home. My uncle visited and he asked me, oh, you work on Robin Island, have you seen Nelson Mandela? My father asked, who is Nelson Mandela? We didn't know about it. Mm. My uncle said in the 60s, there was this big trial of people sent for prison. Yes. My father thought they're all dead already by now. He didn't know they were still alive. Yes. You know, things in South Africa were so tight. If you should have talked about Nelson Mandela on the street and a third person heard you and they reported, you should have immediately re- arrested, mm. 90 days solid confinement, electrical shock, tortured, or maybe killed. People was afraid. I didn't know about Nelson Mandela till I worked in a census office. And that year, he get 55,000 birthday cards. Then I realized he must wow. be somebody special. <laughs> and then I made it my point to find out who is this person. Yeah. And then how did that relationship start to develop? The relationship start actually... After a few months, about nearly four months on Robben Island, where I take Mandela for a visit. And now I smuggled a baby for him while the prisoners was not allowed to see children. He was allowed to see one child, every, uh, sorry, one visitor every three months for 30 minutes. Wow. Only one person. And visit was in a cubicle. They looked through a st- glass, double glass. There was a steel panel between the glass. Everything was recorded for National Intelligence Security Branch. It was very tight. So I get hold of the baby without Winnie Mandela, no. And I smuggled it to Mandela. And that moment when he touched the child, he get tears in his eyes. He become quite emotional. Mm. And, you know, I could have not believed that. And from that moment, there was a secret we share. Because if that leaked out, he should have lost his studies, visits and privileges. Mm. I should have been charged, smuggled with a prisoner, which was called a terrorist. Yes. And the minimum sentence they promised us was five years. Wow. That secret was between us for nearly 20 years. Amazing. And you also looked after three prisoners, didn't you? You also were responsible for Walter Cecilu. What was your relationship with them like and, and with Walter and the others? You know, I become personally in charge of the Mandela group. That is Mandela, Susulu, Mlangeni, Mushlaba. Okay. The four of them. Four of the them. The four of them was mm-hmm. moved off the island. But six months later, they moved another guy, Ahmad Kathradra, also to Polsmo prison. Then they become five. And then in that same time, they bring a young guy to Paulsmo prison also, a very youngster. He was, his name was Patrick Ntobeko Makobella. But Mandela and others was a little bit skeptical about this guy. 
they were think he's a police informant till they found out the background of this guy. He was also a lawyer, which ended up in prison. But my relationship with Susulu was very good. With all of these six guys, I've got a very good relationship. Even after their release, we were still in touch with each other. Wow. We visit each other. You know, Kathradra, I was seeing on a daily basis at the end after he retired at Robben Island because he was in charge of the Robben Island Museum Council. Mm. Mandela I see every three months. And Walter Susulu, every time he's in Cape Town, he phoned me, please visit me. My wife is at Parliament. I'm at home alone. So I visit him. And even Andrew Mlangeni, I was in touch with him till he passed now, I think last year, last year yeah, he passed. Yeah. So I was in touch with him till about three months before he passed. I was still talking to him. So let's talk about your next track. Um, and then obviously I'd love to hear more about your relationship uh, with Nelson Mandela. Um, so this next song that you've chosen is an interesting choice. Um, and it's Hey Tonight by Credence Clearwater Revival. Uh, tell us how this relates to your life's journey. Um, you know, when I was younger and stayed with my family, my nephew was listening to, he was a very big fan of um, Clarence Clearwater Revival. And I also become a fan of it, listen to all the songs you've got, all, the whole range of that songs you've got. But I Tonight was one, especially for me, especially when I was even on Robben Island, that comes on many times also as requests from people from the borders. That year there was a program for people on the borders, family members sent a request for somebody on the border. So I Tonight was also one of the popular ones came up and becomes also my popular one. Brilliant. So what I'd really love to, to know more about is obviously you've talked about the time where you really um, risked, um, obviously, um, Mr. Mandela's privileges, um, but also your own liberty uh, and livelihood in, in ensuring that uh, Mr. Mandela would be able to spend that precious time um, with his grandchild. Um, can you tell me what was the point that the sort of conventional boundaries between jailer and prisoner started to break down and, and a friendship develop? Obviously that was a turning point in the, and there was a, a moment that did that with what you've described, but I'm presuming there were small moments that even led you to even do that in the first place. You know, when I start talking to Mandela one day, when we march him to the visiting group center, he asked me, Mr. Brandt, where are you come from? You put a leg iron smooth around my ankles. You lift up the chains for me. And you treat me with respect. I tell him, Mandela, I come from the farm. And my father said, I'm to respect elderly people. Immediately, he said to me, we, I also come from the rural areas. So that's why we understand each other better. He talked about prison garden. I must help him, give him advice. And from that, where our background come from, we didn't see anything discrimination about apartheid on the farms because we was very close to the workers and Mandela also come from a farm community. Right. And that's what he said. We've got the same background. Only change when we move to the cities. Okay. So the, the relationship between black people and white people was very different in rural communities than what it was in the more urban areas and city populations. That's correct. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Um, and so did you have some sort of rules of engagement drawn up between you and Mr. Mandela in terms of how you would interact with each other? Did you agree on certain No, rules? we didn't have any rules of engagement. But what happened when we alone, you will tell me, 
I, Mr. Brandt, how are you? And he will, will discuss things with me. Never politics. Talk about family issues. Yeah. But when there's another guard close by, he will immediately say, Sergeant Brandt, um, I've got a problem with my studies. Can you try to get me this documents and what, 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 what? And he explained me study problems. Then he mentioned my rank, you know, but if there's no people in sight, he will never mention my rank. He said to me, Mr. Brandt. And that stayed with me, Mr. Brandt, till he became the president. He still called me Mr. Brandt. Wow. And when he became president, he said always for me, there's a most important person in his office today. I must sit on his seat. And it always made me comfortable. And that's a way of engagement. But he was a person try not to make use much of me. He warned his comrades around him. And he said, comrades, don't misuse Mr. Brandt because he's our friend. We don't want to lose him. We also don't want him to be in prison with us. Yeah. And that was his thing around. Wow. Amazing. So what was so special about him? Like in terms of his outlook on life, the way he engaged with people, because you had such an intimate relationship with him for such a long time. Mandela was a down-to-earth person. He was a humble person. He was a person, when I asked him to clean something in a passage where the birds were messing up the night, he would go on his knees and clean it for me. His comrade said, I was sick in bed and my stomach was running. At that time, they've got toilet buckets, not the toilet pot. And every morning, they must clean this bucket. Mandela walked in, he'd take his bucket and he could have not believed Mandela takes somebody's else's bucket to go and clean. So down-to-earth person was. He was a human being like that. He was a, way, a person go so far to smuggle a letter out of prison to my wife. You know, he draft a letter in Afrikaans. He put it in a slab of chocolate. He found out what guard is very close to me and explained this guard what might happen with this chocolate. But I mustn't knew about it because he's afraid I will, I will throw it away and torn it up. But the letter he smuggled to my wife was saying, that he's very worried about me. He want me to also educate. And the more I talk about education, the more I talk other things. And he put his last efforts to my wife to motivate me that I must start also studying. He was that type of person. And did it work? Did you listen? It worked. I was studying things in the prison department and I get a promotion in ranks and so on. Yes, but I didn't study degrees, what he actually want me to do. Okay. Now, You've talked about your wonderful relationship with Mr. Mandela, um, but your relationship with the first Mrs. Mandela wasn't as smooth. Um, can you talk about your relationship with Winnie? Well, Winnie was a difficult lady, but I have very much high respect for Winnie because mm. she was standing behind Mandela for 27 and a half years. Yeah. Look after him. Mandela said she's a human being. She had failed many occasions. But she was in trouble on many occasions where the police tried to kill her on four occasions. They tried to kill her and get rid of her where she tried to push her over the, off the road. And even. There was times when I chased Winnie Mandela away from the prison and said, you didn't book the visit proper way and please go. And when she didn't want to go, I get people to move her off the premises. But I was still very sorry about that situation. But I tell Mandela what I've done. And he said, Mr. Brandt, you just work according to your regulations. My wife knew she must apply properly to get a visit. She can't just turn up here, you know? And he tell her also last time, darling, you don't just turn up here. You put Mr. Brandt in authorities in difficulties here to deal with this. If he allow you, he could have lose his job. And he mentioned it to her. But Winnie Mandela always said, I was so principled and never take any bribes and things from her. But we have a very good relationship. We was really good and understanding. Every time after Mandela's release, when she see me, 
she will run to me to hug me, to thank me for the time I got her husband in prison. And yeah, what a yeah, wonderful relationship we have. Because it was many times I phoned her and I tried to get messages through to her. She get the messages from me. Mm. And that she thanked me for. Wow. So obviously when Mr. Mandela was first imprisoned, it, it seemed as if he was like any other prisoner and he was deprived of everything. But something shifted. What shifted to make the South African government realize that he was special and that actually he had to be treated differently? What happened in 1984, because of sanctions on South Africa, there was come uprising in South Africa. People said free Nelson Mandela and the other leaders. Mandela's name always come to the forefront. And Mandela didn't accept the offer of government at that stage because the offer was he must renounce violence and were released in the outside borders of South Africa. And he said, I was never sentenced for violence. And why must I release the outside borders of South Africa? I can't accept the offer. So what happened when Mandela ended up in hospital with a prostate gland, which have cancer, and they must remove that during operation. Government was worried. If this man died in prison with cancer, and that year, 1985, our country was put in a state of emergency, bloodshed on our streets, and they decided, to go and speak to Mandela in hospital, which Mandela was surprised because the enemy said they will never talk to the ANC, that he immediately asked him if it's possible we can meet again. And from there, discussions and negotiations have started. From there, they put Mandela in a basement of the maximum security prison, totally isolated him away from other prisoners because government was afraid the message leaked out if they negotiate with the ANC and even the ANC negotiate with the government. But if that leaked out, Mandela's negotiating they will say it's a sellout and people will kill him. And they was worried about that too, about his life too. Till he start pulling in his comrades, first Walter Susulu, which was his mentor, which he have a discussion with Susulu. And Susulu said, comrade, if you think the time is right to talk to the enemy, I give my full support. Then Mandela start getting support of other leaders. Mm. So that's where negotiations have started. Wow. Wow. And so in terms of his global popularity and the outpouring obviously as you said he was receiving 50,000 birthday cards on a a regular basis but was he aware of the impact he was having on the whole world I'm not sure if he was aware of the impact but he knew there was a big celebration for his 60th birthday Hmm. and and, and I tell him about the 55,000 birthday cards which he received at that point, but on his 70th birthday, I showed him a video where the people, actors was performing in the UK for his 70th birthday, Massives, the free Nelson Mandela concert. Yeah, I remember. And then, then he knew that people are really cheering up for him and trying to fight him to get him out of this place. You know, he knew there was a I asked Mandela one day, Mandela, don't you give up hope while you sit in this prison? He said, Mr. Brandt, I can never give up hope. Every time when new people came into prison, I knew the blood is still flowing outside. My comrades are still fighting. The freedom will come one day to outside. And that gives me hope and spirit that we fight the, the, the right struggle. The struggle is still continue. Wow. Wow. And so tell me, when did you learn that he was going to be freed? And what was that like for you as somebody that had grown so close to this incredible human being and and to now establish a very different relationship with him as well? 
You know, when Mandela was moved off the island in 1982, Mandela asked me, Mr. Brandt, why they moved us off the island? I said, Mandela, when they're transferring prisoners, it's always to prepare them to get them ready for release. That I know from prison department. That was 1982. It was only a release 1990, many, many years later. Mm. But when he started negotiating with government 1985, I knew that come to a point of negotiations. And this point will come where Mandela must be released. And when I get a message on that Friday, Mandela will be released on Sunday. I was invited to Victor Fester, where I meet Mandela. And he thanked me for the time I'm looking after him. And he was very happy. And I said to him, I won't be here at the gates to say goodbye or welcome you as free, as a free person. I will watch on television if it comes on. Mm. So that Sunday, I was sit in front of the TV and watch when he walked out as a free man. But without that, that next morning, he phoned me from Bishop Tutu's house. I was totally surprised to get a phone call from him. He just wanted to tell me, Mr. Brandt, I am outside today. I'm free. And thanks for the time you got me. I will really miss you, but we will be in touch. I will never forget you. So we was in touch. He visited two times after that, Paul's prison, where he come and see his other comrades with Chris Ani. He visited me at home. And then when he became president, he invited me to his functions. And then I started working in his office in parliament. Oh, wow. So you spent time as prisoner with, when he was a prisoner right through to president and, and working with him in that capacity as well. How incredible. And what, what did other people think? Were, were there members of the ANC that res, were resentful towards you? in that you had been his jailer or, or did they understand the relationship that you had with him? You know, what was very strange for me when I start working in his office in parliament, he sent somebody to show me parliament. When mm. I walk in a passage of parliament, you can say more than 45% of the people I met on my way, hugged me, thanked me, welcomed me. That was all old prisoners from Robben Island, which knew me from that years. They were so happy that I could have joined them. The other people which I met in parliament was some of, his family members, not only his family, but prisoners' family members. It was the lawyers who represent him during the time, which yeah. also get the positions in parliament. And they was all very happy and excited I'd be there. But when I stopped one day at the gas station, one of my superiors stopped there and he said, Brandt, you are a sellout for the white people. Look what happened in our country. Blacks take over our country now. What going to happen to us if we knew you were so friends with them because Mandela speak out on television, friends with these people, we should have killed you. We should have been in prison with him. He was very upset with me. So what happened? I just ignored the guy and he drove off. That same guy came a few years later back to me. And I tried to ignore him, but he walked to me and he said, Brandt, I must take your hand. I must apologize what I tell you that day. I never thought Mandela will walk out of prison with a change of mindset, try to unite people together, bring people together with a World Cup rugby in South Africa and celebrate. We never think Mandela will walk out with peace and reconciliation in his heart. We thought he will walk out of prison with hatred. And we should have need this type of guy many years earlier. Then we should have not have the sanctions and the uprisings in South Africa. That's what the guy told me. <laughs> wow, amazing, amazing. Uh, so your final piece of music uh, is a real classic and symbolizes the spirit of the continent. Uh, it's Africa by Toto. So can you tell me why you chose this one? It is a very good African music, quite a lot of beat. And, you know, for, for Africans like that music, I don't know what it really means or what it stands for, but I know it's an African classic 
music in South Africa. And that is why he taught us that one comes up for me, yes. I also loved Merimum Kweba and so on, all of them, but this one was something standing up for me at that stage. So I'm wondering, as someone that knew him so well and, and saw such a deep transition in terms of, one, his outlook on life, and then also obviously his position um, and, and status, and saw him become perhaps the lead, you know, the greatest leader of the 20th century and, and you know, into the beginning of the, of the century we're in now. Um, what do you think he would make of modern leaders of today? You know, Mandela was a person, a down-to-earth humble person. He was a person very honest. He was a person which was disciplined. And, he, you know, he was studying leaders like Gandhi, Yes. He studied Martha Luther King's background. Yes. He tried to follow their footsteps. Yeah. And he should have, like one day when we visited a school, we walked outside the school. There was kids playing. Mandela touched my shoulder. He said, Brandt, look, they're black and white children playing together. That was strange for me as a president tell me that. I look at him. I said, President Mandela, when you become the president, the schools are multiracial open for all colors today. He said, that's very good. Very good, he said. We walked on. He stopped again. He said, Brandt, look there. That black kid sharing an apple with a white kid. I said, Mandela, if you look at that kid, they're so small, they don't see a color. They just enjoy life. He said, Mr. Brandt, you're right. That's a rainbow nation I want to see develop in my country. Wow. Remember, we try to change Robben Island into our university. We take over a government. We never run a gun before. Someone aligned my comrades going to fail. And I was failing big time. He said, that's a time to educate that youth. They will be our future leaders of our country. So he, he believed we must train youngsters to brought them up as leaders in the country, to follow his footsteps, to lay his foundation. Wow. And what would he make of South Africa today? Um, after he retired, I would think he should have been very unhappy when South Africa have all these corruptions and things in what happened. But he should have been very proud out of all that corruptions. We get a president like Cyril Ramaphosa come up into point. Mm. And Cyril Ramaphosa, he went in because Cyril Ramaphosa was a person which get the constitution adopted with the enemy that time, which protecting the rights of all South Africans till today. And Cyril Ramaphosa is now in power and he dig out of the corruption. He bring it forward. That's why uh, things going wrong in our country. Bring it forward. He take people to task like the former president Zuma. He put him in jail. And we'll put others also in jail to get Mandela's legacy alive again, that we have an honest government. And that he should have been very proud what happened when Cyril Maposa put his foot down. But the problem is he should have also walked to the nation and said to the nation, it's not now the time to break down our country, to make it unruleable. It's now the time to take the hands of the enemy, to work harder than before, to build the country together, not breaking the country. He should have been very upset with that. Yes. So we ask all of our guests to make a pledge. Uh, and so I'd like to know what's yours. My pledge is if we can lift Mandela's legacy, mm. bring people more closer together, mm. let people more understand each other cultures, yes. that we can build the country to the better, that we can all eat the fruits of this country and, yes. and your country. Yes, indeed. Wonderful. 
So sadly, that is all we have time for, uh, Christo. It has been an absolute pleasure and an honor speaking to you and, and hearing about your fascinating life and your remarkable friendship uh, with Nelson Mandela. Um, I know uh, this episode will stay with us all for a very long time. So again, huge thank you for joining us. Thank you, ma'am. My pleasure. And I hope we can build onto Mandela's legacy and the outside world can also follow his footsteps to be down, humble and polite and help people around you. The more you help people around you, Mandela said, the more you'll be blessed with good life. And that's why he reached 95. That's why he reached 95 and that's why he was such a joyous human being. His purpose that's correct. about others. Not only him and his comrades which was with him, the Ravonia Tridest. It's true, indeed. Well, Christo, thank you so much. Thank you. To everybody listening, please join us next time on BBI's You're On Mute, where another icon, leader or changemaker will share unique and valuable insight. Please subscribe and download You're On Mute wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, tell us about it. Please rate us as well. We need that. Or leave us a comment. Until next time, I'm June Sarpar. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.